Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to Oral's Lights, show 134. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, welcome to Oral Delights. This is the Then and Now show. We have two stories, one from the past and one right hot, right written last year and bang up to date. And it's your chance to vote which one do you prefer. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. We have a new fact article contributor coming to Starship Sofa, Jonathan Strand who is going to give a little insight into being a professional editor. I will tell you a little bit more about Jonathan coming up. First me in fiction is by Mike Wood, which is Risk Man. Then we have Looking Back at Science Fiction Genre History by Amy H. Sturgis. Next up is From the Past Story, Hall of Mirrors by Frederick Brown. That is today's show. I hope you do enjoy it and stick around. Before we get started in today's show, you need to know who the winners were, or who the winner was from last month's story. And actually, it wasn't even last month, it was the month before. We had to miss last month's because of the Hugo nominations. But just to remind you, it was CM Cornbluth up against Mercurio de Rivera. And the winner was, out of those two fine stories... CM Cornbluth. There you go. One for the, the old timers there. So it's ones each. Now, if you remember the last one, Nina Kariki Hoffman and the John W. Campbell one, Nina Kariki Hoffman won. This time it was the old one, CM Cornbluth, which, you know, and he's a, one of those writers, you know, like I say, he died very young and he was just on, he's actually on the way to get a job at fantasy and science fiction. So, you know, there's a lot of strangers surrangers surrounding C.M. Cornbluth and a favourite of 
Larry Santuru, who narrated that story as well. The votes were as follows. In percent, we have CM Cornbluth with 59.8% up against Mercurio de Riviera with 40.2%. There you go. Clear winner. So it's ones each. Who's going to win this week? Like I say, we have Mike Wood, who is one of the winners of the Writers of the Future, up against Frederick Brown, a writer from the past. Let me know. Don't forget there will be a poll on the front of the website and a link in the forums. It's just there you go. Just go over, click on it and cast your vote. So before we get into the two main fiction stories, just want to introduce you to Jonathan Strawn. Jonathan's been involved with a number of the kind of major anthologies that's been out there in science fiction and fantasy. He was involved and still is in the Eclipse 1, Eclipse 2, Eclipse 3. He did the best short novels, New Space Opera with Gardner Dozwas. He did that, one and two. Best of Fantasy, he's been involved with that, with Karen Harbour. Best of Science Fiction, with again with Karen Harbour. And Best Science Fiction Fantasy of the Year, did that volume one, two, and three. You know, I could keep going on and on and on. Jonathan's been involved with like, loads of them. And what I wanted to do was just kind of have on a regular basis, you know, every now and again, just get Jonathan's view on kind of the editing side, you know, what gets involved in editing and, you know, talk about some of the kind of anthologies that he's about to release and ones that are coming up. You know, I kind of find putting together works and, you know, just talking about stories that he's getting, you know, how does he go about getting someone like Ted Chang? Do you know what I mean? The guy writes probably one every two years. How does Jonathan get him on his books and get him sorted out? So... Hopefully we're going to get like a number of little fact articles by Jonathan throughout the year. And I'm very pleased to see it. Jonathan, welcome to Starship Sofa. Hi, Tony, and good morning from Perth. Thank you for asking me to come onto the Starship and to talk about issues that have surrounded my editing or the, and that will surround my editing over the coming years, I hope. Originally, we discussed the idea that we might look at the Eclipse series of books that I've been editing for Nightshade Books, and I think we, you know, I look forward to talking about that. But I thought what we might start with is a discussion of a book that I'm finally shepherding to publication right now. I don't think authors or readers always have a good idea of how long it takes to get a book from conception to physical print. Back in early 2006, I was developing a list of projects that I wanted to work on. Some friends of mine uh, had edited novella anthologies for the Science Fiction Book Club. Gardner Dozois had edited 1 Million AD, and he'd co-edited Escape from Earth with Jack Dan. They were great books. Uh, simple idea, six novellas, you know, long stories, around a single theme. And I thought, it would be really, really interesting to do something like that. I'd been working for the book club at the time, editing a series of best short novels anthologies, you know, a year's best long stories, basically. And so I approached the editor there, Andrew Wheeler, with an idea. Back in 1996, I'd seen this amazing painting by Michael Whalen. It's called Trantorian Dream, and it was done for the cover of Isaac Asimov's Foundation's Edge. The artwork portrays a small figure standing on these ruins, framed by an, an enormous set of ruins, and in the middle of the, of the image, this spiral galaxy. It's an inspirational science fictional image. Absolutely wonderful stuff. 
and I just thought I wanted something that captured that sense of scale, that sense of awe, uh, that kind of thing. So what I did was I, I, I came up with the idea of doing a book of stories based around big, dumb objects. Rose, Rose Caveney, who's an English critic, uh, coined the term to describe things like um, matryoshka brains or um, things like Larry Niven's Ringworld, Greg, e- Greg Bear's Eon. Uh, even, funnily enough, I realized after the fact, Terry Pratchett's uh, Discworld. So this is a great idea. I took it to Andy Wheeler, and in October of 2006, he agreed. He said, I love the idea. Let's do it. We began to go back and forth about what writers we might invite. And at around Christmas that year, we sent out the first round of invitations. A great bunch of people agreed to write stories. Corey Doctorow, Greg Egan, Al Reynolds, Steve Baxter, Robert Reed, Sean Williams. I was really happy. The first... A story hit my email box in June of 2007. It was a wonderful novella by Cory Doctorow. And I thought we were off to a great start. Just around the time of Worldcon that year, though, I found out that the Science Fiction Book Book Club was going to change hands. Suddenly, I lost my editor, Andy Wheeler, and we lost the company, and they lost the ability to, or the familiarity with producing new books. Uh, the book club has always been a, a reprinter of books rather than a publisher of books. And there are different things involved. And so I got in touch with the new editor there, a, a chap by the name of Rome Kazada, who's really terrific. And we began to talk about how we might get this book to come out. By that stage, the book club had published six novella anthologies, the final one being a Mike Resnick anthology called Alien Crimes. And mine was supposed to follow in about October of 2008. I delivered the manuscript to the publisher in June of 2008. It had I was very happy with it. I think it's a, a, a terrific book. And in fact, I showed it around to a few people I know, and they agreed. I mean, Gardner, Desoire, told me he thought it was probably going to be the best science fiction anthology of 2009. Unfortunately, the book didn't come out in 2009. The publisher changed hands again. And suddenly there I was with a book that increasingly looked like it was going to be orphaned. This does happen in publishing, particularly when uh, publishers change hands or when editors start or leave with a company. So I was really, really quite worried. And in fact, up until about a month ago, I have to say, I thought the fate of the book was greatly in question. However, uh, I've just recently started working actively again with uh, Rome Cazada at the book club. And it now looks as though the book's going to come out in probably September of 2010. Now that's more than two years late, which is very unfortunate. However, it's still a very fast turnaround. I mean, I saw cover roughs for the book about a week ago, and today's the 1st of May. I hope to see copy edits for the book by sometime in early June, with a little bit of luck. And then, because it's the book club, they can turn it around really, really quickly. They should be able to get it out for their August catalogue with a bit of luck. And before we know it, the book will be out there and in the hands of the readers will actually be able to judge what they think of it. And if we're a little bit lucky, we may even get a trade edition of the book so that everybody out there can see it. But at worst, hopefully, there'll be copies at the Worldcon this year in Melbourne. That's an enormous goal of mine, to to be able, able to have a party there and to launch the book. So it'll have taken four years. I guess something that your listeners might want to know is, does that sound typical to me? Well, I've done books in three months. I've done books in a year. And typically, the life cycle for a book is about two years, in my opinion, 
or my experience. You come up with the idea for a book, you pitch and sell it quite quickly, then a year to get stories written and edited, then a year from delivering the manuscript to publication. This four-year period is really quite unusual, but hopefully it will be well worth it. Now, what I hope to do is to continue talking to Starship Sofa readers about Godlike Machines and about some other books that I'm working on in the coming weeks and months if everything goes to plan for us. And along the way, maybe even see if we can get some of the fiction podcast or something. I know that, that there's always the possibility of that. I'll keep my fingers crossed. Anyway, I hope this has been interesting, and I'll talk to you again next time. Take care. There you go. Do look out for more work and more fact articles by Jonathan Strawn. Jonathan, thank you so much. Put a link on to Jonathan's site and go over there and say hello. Next up, we have the first story in the then and now, and it is by Mike Wood. Quick run through of Mike's writing credits. He was Writers of the Future winner in 2008. Second in the 2008 Winchester Writers Conference Short Story Competition. He was the winner of the Jim Beans Memorial Writing Contest in 2007. His science fiction stories have appeared in The Best of Jim Beans, Universe 2 and Jupiter 21. He's done other writings for the BBC Radio Humour and Travel Articles. And it just so happens last night I was chatting on Skype to John Goodwin, who is the kind of president of Galaxy Press. And John Goodwin was telling us on Skype that they're in the middle of the process of putting together this 25-year coffee table book for writers of the future. And it's actually been put together by Kevin J. Anderson. So and he says it's looking very impressive, so I'll kind of keep you updated on that. The story first appeared in The Writers of the Future, Volume 25. It is narrated by Jack Calvary. Jack was just a listener, who, or is just a listener, who kind of got in contact with Starship Sova and says, can I do some narrations? And a great, great narrator this man is. A little bit like Richard Burton. He's got that kind of deep English voice, which I kind of really was impressed by. So, the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present... Riskman by Mike Wood. She never saw it coming. She never intended for any of it to happen like this. Her intentions were always good, but some things, well, once you let them out of the box, there's just no squashing them back in again. My algorithm will destroy the world, Jen. Leone spoke the words quietly and with intensity, leaning over the beer-sticky table of drinks between us, so that her face was inches from mine, and where I could see the passion dancing in her eyes. Remember this day, Jenkin Morgan, it marks the beginning of the end of hope. The bar in the Roth Dock Hotel in Cardiff had almost become a second home to us. It's one of those modern places with artificial purchased character. The elements are all there, but they never quite succeed in delivering the atmosphere in the way that a good dose of history can. For Leone and me, though, it worked just fine, because we brought our own history. We didn't need the flame effect log fire, the attic sale rows of books glued to the shelves, or the gentleman's club style of leather furniture. The Roth Dock Hotel was our place, because it was close to both T-Solve where Leo worked, and years later to the government offices, where I tasted my brief spell of employment. It was where we always met when we were both in town. At that time in our lives, we saw more of each other in the Roth Dock 
than we did at home. I can remember so many of the talks we had there. They were always spirited, mainly because Leo came straight from work, and excitement always came with her. Excitement as tangible and as thrilling as the ever-present hint of expensive French perfume that was her constant companion, and which never failed to turn heads whenever Leo entered a room. It had nothing to do with risk management. She was agitated, running her fingers through her short, dark hair, the way she always did when her mind was running hot. Riskman is a perversion. I was drawn into it. I don't know how. My desire, always, was to unite mathematics. As a girl, it was pure, the mathematical ideal. I first met Leonie Fenech during the late twenties biofuel war riots in Paris. I was still a policeman back then, part of a temporary Europe-wide force of riot police. I was a single brick in a wall of Kevlar and pliable flesh. She was rioting. To be precise, she was beating me on the head with a fence post. I can still see her as she was, five foot nothing and scrawny, and having to jump in the air just to reach me with that two by two. Her eyes were filled with fire and fervor. I knew right then that she was the girl for me. Sometimes you know things. Sometimes you just have to take a risk. Back then, you never knew how any given action might turn out. The world was filled with uncertainty. Leone changed all of that. She changed everything. I took my chance. I pursued her. Even though my French was poor, I pursued her. Even though on the outside we seemed so ill-matched, I was a good eighteen inches taller than she. My mashed, prop-forwards ears made me look more like a survivor than a tempting male specimen. And intellectually, well, if she was looking for a mind as formidable as hers, then she was looking on the wrong planet. Somehow we clicked, though. The big, soft South Wales boy and the mathematical genius. She said it was empathy, that she recognized my creative side. Whatever, it worked, and I'm grateful for it. It wasn't an easy ride. We were from different places, both culturally and geographically, and the biofuel wars had ended the era of cheap jet travel and made the world big again. But Leone, with her single-minded philosophy to set an objective, then move heaven, hell, and earth to achieve it, helped convince me to take the next step, to take my first big risk. So I stayed in Paris. I did what I'd always secretly wanted to do. I cast the uniform aside, and I began to study art, the wonderful, stupid things people do for love. I went to the bar for two more beers. The television was on. Coincidence and irony, today of all days. They were showing a rerun of the BBC Horizon documentary, Leonie Fenech, Beauty in Numbers. The barman nodded towards the screen. It's a repeat on BBC Four. Thought the lady would appreciate it. I smiled. Thanks, Ralph, but we've seen it. Couple of bottles of Peroni when you're ready? I couldn't help myself. My eyes were drawn to the screen. So, Leone, when did you first realize you wanted to be a mathematician? Do you know, I can give you the exact date, she said, laughing. For me, the dream started on my tenth birthday, the 3rd of July, 2020. I shook my head. This had surprised me the first time I saw the interview. 
I'd known all about her sense of wonder for the patterns and symmetries of mathematics, but she'd never really told me where it all came from, and the image that came to mind of a ten-year-old girl with a passion for maths, in preference to ponies, was difficult to reconcile. I found a book about Wiles and his proof of Fermat's last theorem. At ten years old, it moved me, because I'd heard about how Andrew Wiles himself was the same age, ten years old, when he began his solitary journey towards proving Fermat. I wanted a passion like that, a guiding star. I bought the book with my birthday money. It took me on a journey, a quest for that single passion. I thought I'd found it in my early teens with Langland and his quest for a grand, unified theory of mathematics. I studied him. I studied Wiles. I studied all the great names, and I began to see a picture. There were so many coincidences and parallels. Much of my work kept returning to Pierre Fermat and those letters he exchanged with Pascal, the roots of probability. And that's where my work began to focus. Probability, certainty and uncertainty, the uncharted terrain of coincidence. Leonie was so intense. The interview was so like her. I loved it when she became so enraptured in her incomprehensible world of numbers. And then there was Wiles' work, using modular forms to prove Shimura Tanyama. And in 2015, the Borodin conjecture came along and promised to move economics into something that was so much more tangible. He was this close. She held her thumb and forefinger, a whisker apart. This close to forging yet another link with Shimura Tanyama. And that afternoon in Cardiff, the enthusiasm and passion were no different. Even though the circumstances were at odds with the high-flying successes that had surrounded her at the time of the documentary. I returned to our table with the drinks. They're running your show on the TV, I said. She laughed. Coincidence, Jen? I could give you a wonderful equation that would show you the certainty of their repeating that program today. She was on an adrenaline high, after having quit her job under circumstances that would have brought most people to tears. She had just made le grand geste, and she was in full flow, waving her arms, jumping from her seat, and coming ever closer to spilling our beer. She went over the problems with her algorithm again. I'd heard it before, and I hadn't understood any of it then, either. But Leonie needed to talk. She was talking fast and loud, sometimes slipping into French without realizing, English or French, it was all the same to me. Once she got deeply into her maths, the language morphed into sounds without meaning. But I'd learned long ago that there were times when it was important to listen. Understanding was irrelevant. I didn't even dare take a sip of my beer because breaking eye contact would break the spell. Leo, ever restless, brought her knee up under the table and sent our glasses spinning again. Beer sloshed and went fizzing onto the tabletop. My glass teetered on the edge for an impossible moment and then righted itself. All of this unfolding drama passed by Leo unnoticed. She talked. She was animated, using her expressive vocabulary of voice, hand and body language. She placed a hand on my arm and looked straight into my eyes. 
That night, Jen, the night the equation completed, was the night that uncertainty died. I should have stopped it then. Fini. Because people will embrace this thing, even when they are aware of the lie. People want certainty, even if it is an illusory certainty, and this want will break them. I should have destroyed my papers, Jen. I should have set fire to my office with everything inside it, myself included. If only I'd known. Je suis le diable. I am the devil. I have destroyed humanity. Steady on, Leo. I said, it's just numbers. Whoops. Ce n'est pas des nombres simplement. She shouted the words. People glanced over, then looked away. Some looked up at the television screen and made the connection between the Leonie Fenech of today, who had now fallen silent, and the TV version from two years earlier. The TV Leo was still in full flow. I could spot the cuts where they'd taken out the bits where she lapped into French. The editing was almost seamless. I knew that I could do something. Cut. Maxime Boradin was a wonderful teacher and mentor. He taught me so much in Paris, but there were so many loose ends. Too many. So I began writing my genetic algorithm. Cut. That's an algorithm that can learn from its own millions of mistakes, she said. I looked over at Leo, who was quiet and now listening to her own words on the television. Her lips repeatedly formed those words... Je suis le diable, which she whispered under her breath, all the time shaking her head. I incorporated chaos theory, going right back to Sofia Kovaletskaya and Alexandra Lyapov. Cut. It took nearly eight months to write that algorithm, and then nearly a year to run it for the first time. By the second time it ran in just eighteen minutes. I was surprised. It seemed to have found an equilibrium that should not have existed, because it was describing a dynamical instability. The interviewer nodded. A nod seemed appropriate, but I could tell from the vacancy in his eyes that he had lost it now. Again and again I ran it, from different starting points, using both real and imaginary numbers, and using different, more abstract functions, and again and again it came back full circle to that lovely, ugly equation. That lovely, ugly equation was a turning point for the world. For Leo and me, it marked the end of our carefree youth. Up until that time, we'd both been moving through life with an eye for the moment. We were wild, free, and unconcerned. When I say unconcerned, we did have our causes. Leonie still felt bitter about what was going on in Africa. The biofuel wars were a wake-up call to those of us who had naively believed that the world had become a better place. I'd been living in my head, oblivious to the injustices, right up until the Paris riots, where I found myself on the wrong side. Leonie opened my eyes for me, with that fence post. She fought for justice. We fought. But in those student days, the fight, the participation, was sometimes more important to us than the cause. We had a voice, and it was fun. I left uni in 31, and I began to paint in earnest. I had belief in myself. I really thought I had something. Leo had another year to complete her Doctorat du Troisième Cycle, but she had already made a name for herself in the isolated world of mathematics, and her options were growing daily. 
The Sorbonne wanted her to stay on for a couple more years to earn a doctorat d'état, so that she might teach there, but at the same time she was being courted by some major players. She ignored both the big money offers from the multinationals and the entreaties from the university, and she took off on a typical Leone-style tangent and accepted an offer from T-Solve, a small research consultancy in Cardiff. I was unhappy. I felt she was letting herself down. She was better than this. Come on, Leo. Cardiff. You've had offers from GM Ford, Voda Vivendi Siemens, BP Shell, and you're looking at T-Solve? Who the hell are T-Solve? They've got a staff of what? Twelve? Stay out of it, Jen. This is my world. I know what I'm doing. Jesus, Leo Cardiff. You're doing it because you think I'm homesick. So selfish, Jen. You think this is about you? This stung me. That was exactly what I had thought. And yes, I suppose I was being selfish. I was enjoying Paris and freedom from family ties. I deflected the jibe by grabbing the copy of New Scientist that lay on the table amongst my clutter of paint tubes and brushes, and I waved it in front of her. She was the cover girl, looking chic and elegant. Fenech, the quest for unification, ran the headline. I threw the magazine at her. I picked up another, Paris Match. Lionel Fenech, la beauté, l'intellectuel. I jabbed at the headline. I didn't throw this one, though. I already had plans to get the cover framed. She looked stunning in that tight black dress. Right now, you are probably the most famous, the only famous mathematician in the world. Shouldn't you be aiming higher? Tissot was small, yes. But they would give me freedom to develop my work. I have ideas, Jen. And these are ideas that might have practical application. No longer just pure number theory. I don't want to go to some faceless corporation and be buried in mission and marketing hype. I don't want to be a beauty queen, a corporate image. It all sounded kind of plausible, but I always had my doubts. She'd once denied having any desire for applied maths. For her, the essence of the chase was always in the numbers. Numbers were clean, precise, black and white. But now something had changed, and I wasn't sure that even she was aware of it. She joined TESOLV, and for five years she vindicated her own self-belief and that of her employers. We set up home in the Gower Peninsula, and I reluctantly re-established contact with my parents in Merthyr Tydfil, my hometown, a town locked into an endless cycle of urban decay, urban renewal. I visited at weekends and bore their silent Victorian disapproval of my ever-failing career, of my financial dependence on a successful partner mother hated that word and of family betrayal there had been three generations of policemen in the morgan family when my younger brother daffid was killed in africa the responsibility fell on my shoulders and i quit the force and became an artist i bore their disapproval with a forced smile and with ulcer-forming stress-laden guilt leone worked on her proofs and her algorithms sometimes at the T-Solve HQ in Cardiff, or, more usually, she worked alone in her cramped office behind our cottage. For inspiration, she had the portraits of her heroes hanging all around the walls. Fermat, Laplace, Pascal, Julia and Fatou, and overseeing them all in pride of place above her desk was Sophie Germain, 
the self-taught French number theorist who had had to masquerade as a man in order to have her mathematical genius recognised. For Leone, Sophie Germain was the archetypal heroine and role model. For five years, Leone stayed pure and theoretical. She laboured to prove something, both to herself and to her small, insular circle of colleagues. Then came the algorithm, the Fenech algorithm. Simerve, she once said, is it not bad enough that I create this abomination? Why do they insist on naming it after me? But in those first triumphant months, she was unaware of the darker shadows that haunted her mathematical creation. She came home each evening, thrilled and exhilarated about what she was doing. Although the roots of the algorithm were founded deeper in pure number theory, the Fenech algorithm had real-world applications. Leo could not resist the process of putting it to some practical use. T-Solve were ecstatic. This was exactly the kind of thing they had always hoped might result from their association with the fabulous Leonie Fenech. The first collaboration was with a local firm of actuaries, small, discreet and utterly blown away by what they saw. Then Leonie and her team gave a presentation to some of the country's major insurance companies. The actuaries had maintained their discretion. There had been no leak. And so what took place that afternoon has since been likened to an evangelical awakening. The insurance companies had come face to face with God, and God was green and crinkly. From out of nowhere, all risk had become predictable, quantifiable, and sexy. T-Solve had scrambled to protect Leo's work with international patents, but the news was out. The big picture began to emerge. The forces of subversion are always waiting on the sidelines for the next big thing, and in August 2037, they started to mobilize. Jen, I have news. She was out of breath. I guessed she'd run all the way up the path from the lane where we parked our cars. She was hopping up and down, finding it difficult to keep still. The broad smile and shining eyes hinted at the kind of news she'd brought. You're home very early. Have you been sacked? She punched me on the arm. I had to come and tell you. Besides, I couldn't concentrate. Jen, we've had an approach from the federal government. They want to send two European ministers to see us next week. Since when did you become a fan of the F.E.? I can become a loyal and enthusiastic supporter of our government, if only they have the right kind of package to offer. Jane, I know this is the breakthrough we have been waiting for. The insurance guys were hot for the program, and I'm sure word has spread. So, what are you hoping for? Investment, resources. We are still struggling with some of the modules. With access to FE hardware, we can crack some of the problems in months rather than years. With a fully integrated system, we can make a difference. This is everything I ever wanted, Jen, to make a difference. Leo, it's everything you ever deserved. I am so proud of you. I pulled her close and hugged her. She couldn't relax, though. She was too animated. She pushed me away holding my shoulders with outstretched arms so that she could look into my eyes. Jen, you have to be there. Leo, I can't. You have to share the moment with me. It's not a problem. 
Everyone at Tisov knows you. You won't be in the way. I'll introduce you to the ministers as an associate. Please, Jen, I want you to see it, to be there with me. I took a seat in the corner, next to Linda Wilkes, the CEO's wife, another associate. The boardroom at Tisov is large for such a small company. It can sit thirty around the table with ease, and that afternoon the room was full. Amongst the honorary grey-suited invitees were Simone Hillier and Gerhard Klum from the federal government. As soon as I saw them edging into the boardroom, looking around in disdain at the stained oak effect formica tables and the austere plastic stacking chairs, I felt a sinking premonition that the afternoon might not be the triumphant affair that Leo had wanted me to witness. Coffee was served. Then Bob Wilkes launched into a nervous opening, making the introductions before handing over the meeting to Gerhard Klum, who gave a curt nod and a grimace. We would like T-Solve to work exclusively for Europe, was Klum's opening line. He smiled, but the expression did not sit well on his face. And to that end, we have made a substantive offer to your shareholders. We have reached agreement with an acceptable majority in accordance with T-Solve's articles. As quick as that, T-Solve and Leo had become government employees. I watched the transformation of emotions sweep over Leone's face like a thundercloud at a summer picnic. I felt my own stomach turn. Leo was the first to break the shocked silence that followed the announcement. You have done this to gain possession of the algorithm. Why do you want to risk, man? she asked, using the new product name for the first time. Her voice was strangely calm and controlled. Riskman offers unprecedented benefits to the individual. We want to make sure everyone has the chance to take full advantage. You do appreciate Riskman is not fully realized in its current form. The algorithm achieves equilibrium on an incomplete data set. It works well processing physical risk, but there are other uncertainties that we have so far been unable to incorporate. Riskman is still a non-unified model. The economic model, for example, has not been incorporated at all. We are some way from being ready to begin any distribution. This is your plan, I assume. You are going to give it away? The government official coughed and smiled. No, no, not give it away. Have no fear about that. But we are going to make it widely available. I have no fear about you giving Riskman away, at least in a controlled and limited form, Herr Klum. My fears lie elsewhere. You're going to sell it? Subscription, Miss Fenech. I believe we can offer a full, remotely accessible package via the internet. Ah, we will offer Riskman throughout Europe on a monthly subscription basis. There will be a central database, central processing. Riskman can be used to support insurance applications, and it will be an aid to improving the health and safety of every European citizen. Riskman will become a lifestyle companion for everyone. Assuming everyone will be able to afford it. Yes, Miss Fennec but we aim to price it reasonably. But not reasonably enough for some. We, and it's only for Europeans, 
and I don't suppose you'll want the armed forces to have it. In Africa, at least not the lower ranks. Miss Fennec, I think... No, no, you do not think. You have not considered the implications at all. The schemes you are proposing could be a disaster, a catastrophe. It should be available to all as a tool for individuals. Your proposal for a central database is dangerous. It is irresponsible. Miss Fennec? It was the slippery one, Simone Hillier, who took over the speaking now. She took off her spectacles and stared at Leone with those trademark cold, grey eyes that were familiar to everyone in Europe. Leone stared back, two irresistible and stubborn wills. Neither would break eye contact, and the silence seemed to stretch on for minutes. Miss Fennec, Hillier said at last, the full benefits of Riskman can only be realized through sharing data. Access must be controlled, and so, as with any scarce resource, there must be a price, and it is inevitable that some will be unable, or unwilling, I might add, to meet that price. This is what we call a market economy. Miss Ilya, this is what some might call greed. Oh, come now, Leone. Miss Fennec will do fine, Miss Ilya. Now, let's not avoid the reality here. There is no scarce resource. Riskman, in its current configuration, exists. It is a simple algorithm, and it could be made available on an individual basis to anyone. I have published this transcript in Nature. I have no intentions of limiting any benefits that may accrue from... Uh, Leone? This was Bob Wilkes. He's not your typical CEO. He's a nice guy. He would have hated all this, I'm sure. Leone, we have patented Riskman. You know this. You were part of that decision. The federal government has acquired the patents along with executive control of TSOV. Leone, I'm sorry, but... But what, Bob? Look around. The feds have been invited to dine with us, and they've ended up nicking the silver. Leone turned back to Hillier and Klum. Il n'y a pas une resource limitée. Leone was on her feet now. Riskman is not a scarce resource. You are making it scarce. You are in this for profit. You've screwed me. You've screwed Tissol. Now you're going to screw the whole world. So tell me, Miss Hillier, Herr Klum, for what will the money be used? On what social good will it be spent? Biofuel? Extra bullets for the army so we can steal more fuel crops from the Africans? Most funny. Or to finance the Nigerian labor camps. Maybe you'll spend some on aid for the extra refugee children you create. Or is even that too much to ask? Most funny. This is quite enough. And the full model, listen again, is not even finished. Leone. Please, Bob Wilkes put a hand on Leo's shoulder to get her to sit down. Leone, I know how you feel about the African situation, but really, this isn't helping. Let's just listen to what our guests have to say. Thank you, Mr. Wilkes. This was Hillier. Miss Fennec, the foreign policy of the federal government is really not a part of our remit. Please be calm. We are not here to take Riskman away from you. We're here to discuss. We value your input. We will need you on board to help develop the product. 
then to refine it into a practical online resource. I don't want this meeting to be combative in any way. If there's something that I have said or suggested that led you to these misconceptions, then I apologize. We want you to be part of the team, Miss Fenwick. So, Leo took a long breath. She placed her hands, palms down, on the conference table in front of her. Then, I too apologize. She sat down. There were relieved smiles all around. And you wish me to help? Absolutely. Collaboration, part of the team? Of course. D'accord. So our first object, our first task, must be set up a working group to develop a safe and fully functional open source version of Riskman, n'est-ce pas? Open source? Miss Fenech, oui. Oui, bon. Open source? C'est gratuit. It's free. Miss Fenech, no. The subscription will be fair. It will be just. But there will be no open source distribution of... Leonie was on her feet again. She leaned across the table and adopted her whispering, menacing tone. Well, my friends, you will destroy the world, and I will wash my hands of it all. On the conference table, placed in front of each visitor, there was a glossy brochure that had been provided to explain the vision and functionality of Riskman. None had been opened or even touched. Leonie reached over and picked one up. Without breaking eye contact with Hylia, she began tearing the brochure, first into halves, then quarters. She held out the scraps in one hand and looked around the room to make sure everyone was watching. Then she flicked the shredded booklet into Hylia's face, spun round and blazed out of the room, slamming the door behind her. There was pandemonium. I slid down in my chair. I shrugged helplessly whenever Leo's colleagues, people that I knew, caught my eye. As soon as an opportunity arose, I slipped out. I knew where I'd find her. I went straight across the road to the Roth Dock Hotel. Leo was waiting in our favourite corner, the table by the window, to look out onto the road and the T-Solve offices on the other side. She had a box that was filled with her desk contents beside her. I expected tears, and wouldn't you think that after all these years I'd know her better than that? No tears. There was rage. She made her... My algorithm will destroy the world, speech. And she spilled our beer. But always, there was that cold glint of determination in her eye. And this reaction, I did know. This, I knew very well, indeed. There were a lot of tensions that year. We wanted to have children. This was something we had always talked about. But the time was never right, and now Leo had become too pessimistic about the world into which she might bring them. And money, of course. When beggary comes knocking, tensions are inevitable in any relationship. A few months after Leo became unemployed, I took a job with the Welsh Assembly. To Leone it was a job with the government, and my treachery was sublime. I do not understand you, Jenkin. What has happened to all of your dreams? It was late. We were in the back bedroom, the room I used to call my art studio. There were no paintings, no works in progress. I'd brought in a TV a few weeks earlier. I looked around, in vain, for the remote, then hauled myself up from the sofa and crossed the room to switch it off. I returned to the sofa. Leo was still standing in the doorway, her arms folded. Nothing has happened to my dreams, Leo. 
I'm sure this is just temporary, but I have to be realistic about my painting. I'm not selling anything, because you have lost your edge, your passion. No, I haven't. I've gained something. I've gained the will to eat. You were once a great artist. My stuff was, is, and always will be crap, and you know it, I said, although I didn't really believe it. As I say, things were tense. Sometimes people say things just to prolong the upset. It hurts them just as much as it hurts those who care about us. Your stuff was inspired. Your work was in Tate Modern. This was cruel, and I'm certain Leo was well aware of it. Only she continued. She kept on dialing up the pain. The critics were moved. You saw the newspapers. It was a mistake, Leo. You know exactly how it made me feel. My paintings never hung in the Tate. You were fated, Jen. A representative minimalist's plea against 21st century economic pressures. It was a celebrated work of modern art. It was nothing. A piss take. I was angry. You know how it happened. It was random anarchy. Three pointless canvases. It was art, Jen. It was rubbish. Jenkin, Leone, you know as much about art as I know about mathematics. So what? The Tate people know nothing about art also? So it would appear. It would also appear. They know as much about economics as your algorithm does. Nine and a half grand for... What? Spillage. Huh. Leo came over and pulled the swivel chair from behind my desk. She wheeled it in front of the sofa where I slouched, and she turned it so that she could sit astride the chair, with her arms resting on its back. I was trapped on the sofa. Jen, don't you see? Especially now. You had a message to give. A complex message. You were angry and disillusioned about so much of the art world. And you took a risk. You took a risk with your art. But it was not what I... Doesn't matter... You spoke with emotion through your art. It wasn't a safe option. And somehow the raw emotion of the artistic act was recognized. The Tate took it. The Tate were conned by their ingrained, blinkered attitudes. No, it was you, your own stupid conscious mind that was conned, Jen. Your subconscious, the artist, knew exactly what it was doing. And it took you on a journey of risk extreme risk, and it gave you your first real success. It was powerful art. It was bollocks. So, now you will design logos and letterheads for the governments. Will this be art? Will this be worthy? Will it feed your soul? It will feed my stomach, Leo. And yours. Jen, do you see the parallel? The tragedy of Riskman? Take away enterprise and our feared and beloved precariousness, and you take away our hope. We had many arguments like this one. She was right and she was wrong. Designing compliment slips and logos didn't feed my soul, but then it didn't put much bread on the table either. Leo threatened that if I was going to prostitute myself to the government for so little reward, then she may as well do the same if Tisov would agree to take her back, but that would have been a step too far. She would never have allowed herself to do that. Besides, she'd done the hard part with Riskman, and it appeared, now, that Tisov were managing to move forward without her input.
a few days later. Was the letter I flicked it across the breakfast table, where it collected marmalade and toast crumbs. It's about the car insurance. It seems we can have a lower premium if we take out a linked Riskman account. Merde, you are not thinking? No, Leo. I am aware of how you feel. I was just interested, that's all. This was a lie. I was quite serious about signing up, and I was considering doing it covertly. Our financial situation was deteriorating. I was beginning to hope we wouldn't see any outward signs of Riskman, I continued. You were kind of dramatic, that night in Cardiff, with your this-is-the-end-of-hope prophecies, you know. It was not dramatic, Jen. They are pushing the short model. This is the beginning. Watch. A couple of weeks later, I was home from work early. I'd built up some flexi-time, and I was weary from staring at Rimney Redevelopment Zone logos. As I pulled into the lane, Owen, our neighbour, was out mowing the lawn. Not in work today, Owen? Hi, Jenkin. No, I had to skip. Can't use the car. Problems? No, no, it's a... It's a high-risk day for me, that's all. I've had a few lately. What? Risk, man. I got my car insurance linked. It saves me a few bob, or at least it did at first. But I have to check my risk profile every day, and sometimes... Well, the last few weeks it's been making me leave for work earlier and go via Newport. Pain in the ass, I can tell you. It's put about ten miles onto my commute. Then, now and again, it says, Too risky. Stay at home. What can you do? You could ignore it. No can do, Jenkin. Wouldn't be insured. If I got caught, I'd be knackered. You are a police officer, Jenkin. You know how easy it is to spot someone driving on a red disc. I don't think the linked policies work like that, Owen. Discs only turn red over time, when the policy expires. You sure you've got it right? You'd better believe it. They use smart ink or some damn thing. Even if you don't go online to check your risk status, the disc's there to warn you, and, of course, your ex-brethren in law enforcement are waiting to pounce. I'm linked on my contents insurance as well. There's a marker by the front door. There are some days when I'm only covered so long as someone's home. Can't go out, can't go to work. Sometimes I have to skip work. Other times Gwen throws a sickie and covers it. Okay, so now and again we take a small chance, but... Well, look at it this way. If Riskman says your house is high risk some days, well... It's better to stay at home and keep an eye on it, yeah? I didn't tell Leo about the conversation. She was wound up enough about anything to do with Riskman. But then she had a chat with Gwen a few weeks later, and she was off on one. She tried to organise an action group amongst the neighbours, but most people were quite happy about the cost savings and the extra sense of security they were getting from Riskman, and they couldn't see what Leo was getting so worked up about. Then our car insurance was cancelled. It was a brusque letter, containing a small cheque for the outstanding balance, less admin. It explained that should we decide to subscribe to Riskman, we need only telephone or email with our account number, and our insurance policy would be reactivated. Of course, I was screwed. I lived on the Gower, and I worked in Cardiff, sixty miles away. There was no practical public transport. The best I could come up with was a 15-mile cycle to the railway station. I'd been given no notice, no time to plan around. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My car insurance cancellation was immediate. I made a few phone calls and found a company that would insure me without a Riskman account. They weren't even online. They sounded dodgy and the cost was ridiculous. The commute had been crippling me in fuel bills anyway, and so suddenly it was riskman or unemployment, and unemployment would cost us our home. Leo and I had another bitter argument about it. I'd taken her out for a meal to our favourite Italian, to soften her up a little. Don't you see, Jen? It cannot work, she said. Apart from the fact they are still using the short model, the whole premise of the algorithm is being undermined. Leo, you keep on contradicting yourself. One minute you're slagging F.E. ministers for wanting to charge people for Riskman. Next thing you're complaining that too many people have it. All I see is that without signing up I cannot work, at least not in Cardiff. And let's face it, there's nothing doing for me here on the Gower with this recession. I can't even rejoin the force, they're cutting back on policing everywhere. There is no contradiction, Jen. The original model, installed on a home computer and working in isolation on behalf of just the user, would have been a useful tool for managing personal risk profiles. I already installed it on your laptop. But this massive, corporate, obscene database is self-deluding AI. The algorithm works through sampling and environmental feedback. If the sampled population is then prevented from performing the risk-assessed activities, then the interpretation will become skewed. Leo, you're talking maths again. Riskman thinks it knows all the answers. It believes itself to be God. But Riskman does not know everything. It is incomplete. To accept Riskman would not be a solution. It would be a short-termist reaction. Wait it out, Jen. Leo, we cannot afford to wait it out. We cannot afford not to, Jen. I pumped up my tyres and set my alarm two hours earlier. The last time I'd been on a bike was art college. I try to stay fit. I run. I swim. But cycling uses different muscles. 
and from the cosseted perspective of a car, I hadn't realized just how many hills there were on the Gower. I suffered. I reached the station with barely minutes to spare, to find that the 7.52 had been cancelled. Staff shortages. So despite my best efforts, I was over an hour late for work. I had a presentation first thing. I was supposed to be unveiling my Rimney ideas. Now, I'm not a workaholic. Far from it. The job is just a job. So I wasn't anxious about being late in the traditional career angst sense of the word. But I was annoyed. I'd made the effort. I'd been slogging up and down hills since long before first light. And I'd then wasted an hour sitting alone in the cold on the station platform. The sense of unfairness was huge. Then what happens? I find that neither the project manager for Rimney, nor the urban regeneration director, have turned in for work, a mystery bug. And so my presentation gets cancelled. I spent the day torturing the orange stress ball on my desk and visualising the long journey home. You're looking thinner, Jen. All the cycling is doing you good. I finished locking my bicycle in the shed and hobbled my way back up the path to the front door where Leo was leaning, an amused smile on her face. I suppose that's a plus point. Do you know I've had to cycle all the way to Cardiff twice this week? Sixty bloody miles? The trains are hopeless. It's always staff shortages these days. Whatever happened to leaves on the track or frozen points? Why do you not try to get a job on the trains? If they are so short of staff, the pay is probably better. It's not a staff shortage at all. That's an excuse. I think the buggers are all having high-risk days. Ah, the welcome return of Jenkin Morgan, the cynic. Alas, you are beginning to see. Well, here is another one for you. It is not just the trains that are suffering from risk, man. There was no bread in the supermarket today. And did you hear on the news that another biofuel company has failed? Soigo? We are fighting the Africans to take their crops from them, while at the same time our own fuel crops are rotting in warehouses. Come on, Leo. That's stretching it. There is a recession, you know. Yes, Jen, I know. Well? And this is where Leo can be so annoying. She just shrugged her shoulders and went back to her study. She'd been working harder than ever since she left T-Solve. I asked her what she was up to, working at the weekend despite not having an employer. She gave me a lot of mathematical stuff until my brain zoned out. But then later in the evening, I took a glass of wine into her to get her to stop, or at least slow down. I could tell from her eyes that she was tired, but she couldn't switch off. If I marry my algorithm to the work I did with Maxim Borodin on the economics model back in Paris when I was working towards mathematical unification, I might be able to incorporate economic risk. And? Look, Riskman works by taking all the variables and finding the shortest risk-free path. Yeah, like root-finding software. You explained that one before. Wait, so Riskman gets smarter the more data that is fed back. But only physical risk. There are other forms of uncertainty that Riskman is not even aware of. Critically, at the moment, economic risk is the weaker link. And this is what I am trying to fix. There is also the problem of emotional risk. But I have no mathematical model for intangibles and the psychological effects are probably the more serious in the long run. But I must not put the carriage before the horses. So, 
What if you fix the economic thing? What can you do? You don't have a job. You can't influence anybody. I will give it away. I will send the copy to everyone. Asia, the US. What about the patents? The federal government will nail you. You go to jail. No, the patents are for Riskman, and Riskman does not address the economics. I will give my new algorithm a new name. I will also send it to the European government. Maybe Vitae solve as a gift. And open source? I don't know. It was wrong to release the algorithm in the first place, when it was only a partial solution. RM2 will be better, but it will still be a partial solution. It will still be disruptive. I don't want to be responsible, at least any more responsible. But the US has already started using a version based on your original published work. They've thumbed their noses at the international patents. You told me that last week. Yes, and have you seen the disaster on Wall Street these past few days? Surely that's just the recession starting to bite over there. Yes, Jen, the recession I started. Leonie caught me logged on to Riskman. If I'd been more open about it, maybe she'd have been less pissed. But she found me sitting in my car, with my laptop, at the farthest outpost of wireless range. I was hiding from the rain. Car's no good for anything else these days. I held my hands up to ward off the rage. I was just looking, Leo. I was just looking, just... and thinking. Leo's response was in fast and incomprehensible French. I got out of the car and we stood in the downpour, either side of the car, shouting across the hood for ten minutes or so, trading insults, making points by slamming fists down onto the bodywork, neither of us making sense. When we were both shouted out and exhausted and wet, I opened the door on my side and climbed in out of the rain, indicating that Leo might want to do the same. It was a long time before I found myself sufficiently in control to speak again. You're a clever girl, Leo. Okay, that's an understatement. You're a genius. But the recession thing, the end of the world scenario, think about this. Is there a chance, the remotest possibility, that in all this doom stuff, you might be wrong? Have you ever stopped to consider all the good that your algorithm has done? Leonie started to say something, but I held up my hands. I was sure about this. Wait, hear me out, Leo, please. The recession stuff could be coincidence. Jen, you are talking to someone who knows a bit about uncertainty and coincidence. Yes, yes, Leo, I know that, but what if it is coincidence? Let us just, for argument's sake, make that assumption. What are we left with? Well, I've been googling around on this. Just after the millennium, road deaths were running at about nine per week. Nationally, that is. Okay, they'd fallen slightly over the previous few decades. But the number had leveled off. Nine per week. That's nearly 500 people killed every year. It stayed that way until quite recently. Leo, the number of road deaths in the last six months... Have you any idea? She shook her head. Three, Leo. Three deaths. Two years ago, in the same period of time, there were 230-odd. You, Leo, in the last six months, have saved the lives of over 200 people. Your software, Riskman, has saved those lives. Now, if we can ignore all this economic stuff, 
Don't you think that the preservation of even just one of those lives might just be a noble outcome? Leone paused for a moment and considered. I was thinking I'd made a breakthrough. It felt good, because prior to this, she'd always been the one with all the answers. Then she spoke, calmly and rationally. Jen, I hate to spoil the moment for you. I know Riskman works. In a world of limited cause and effect, Riskman has to work. I designed it that way. Only now it has a far greater data resource. Riskman looks at all the dynamics, all the interplay of actions and reactions. It now draws upon a huge database built from the account holder's RFID telemetry, as well as data from every other account holder. Then it uses the algorithm to process the data and arrive at a probable outcome. If the incidence of physical risk on that outcome exceeds a specified threshold, a subroutine makes subtle changes to the subject's input and feeds it back to the algorithm to assess a new risk factor. It does it again and again. Once a satisfactory outcome has been reached, Riskman publishes the desirable amended variables. A new route to work, an early alarm call, a change of diet, a change of career. In its limited and blinkered way, it is bound to work. So what's the problem? Come on, Leo. Why are you so worried about it? Because it learns. Risk assessment software is easy, Jen. It has been around for years, but Riskman is different. Riskman learns. Genetic learning restricted to one person, one family. The changes are slight. Take the kids to school five minutes earlier, stay in the house after eight, that kind of thing. But when everyone has Riskman, the activity modifications are less subtle, and the effects are more dramatic. Do not use the car at all, and, oh look, I, Riskman, have prevented yet another accident. Let me use that technique for everyone. Ah, that is better. What about those subjects that we cannot control? Those without the Riskman account? I can cancel their car insurance. That will keep them off the roads. But that's nonsense, Leo. If Riskman stops everyone from driving, what's the point of having car insurance anyway? Ah... So at last you are beginning to see, this is nonsense. It does not make economic sense. But think, Jen, why should it make economic sense? Economics are not part of the calculation. We keep talking about car insurance. Of course car insurance is visible and has had a tangible impact upon our lives. But insurance is only a tiny thread in the risk man disaster, Jen. We do not always see the wider picture. Financial markets, investment portfolios, defense strategy. All of these risk-oriented activities are foolishly looking to risk man for assistance. But if that's happening, there must be the makings of catastrophe. Yes, I suspect many businesses or nations do not yet understand the root cause of their economic misfortunes. And even those I do, well, it would be political suicide to stop it now because... because lives are being saved. Yes, never mind your 500 a year, thousands of lives are being saved. You can't pull that one now. That would be, well, tantamount to murder. 
I think about Owen, our neighbor. His lawn is beautiful. He's always working on it. He is being prevented more and more often from going to work. He loves it. His firm can do nothing. They arrange his car insurance. Car usage is part of his job. And the insurance company requires him to subscribe to Riskman. Do you think Owen is unhappy about all that extra leisure time? Owen's just idle. Don't get me wrong, he's a good mate, but he's a lazy sod, I said with a smile. He should get the train like me. How many times has your train failed this week? I don't know, three, four times. They've got staff shortages. They've got Riskman. The rail workers cannot get to work. Maybe trains are cut because Riskman predicts an accident. Through shortages in signalling staff. Perhaps. Before the year is out, you will be cycling all the way to Cardiff and back every day. And you will be the only employee turning in for work. Other businesses, construction companies, emergency services, assembly lines, they have risk factors too. They will all be risks that can be lowered or even eliminated with similar undesirable side effects. You can project a parallel scenario across every economic activity in Europe. And what do you get? I didn't say anything, because suddenly, in a flash of insight, I saw. At last, I was seeing the future through Leone's eyes, and I could see the force that drove her to her desk each day. I was swept by compassion for my Leo, for now I knew what she knew. She had unleashed the beast, and she understood with cold mathematical certainty that it could never be stopped. Leo... Is there anything? Je peux ne faire rien. I can do nothing. I can paper over the cracks. I can apply a fresh coat of paint. But the house will fall. Leone's prediction about me cycling all the way to Cardiff every day within a year was never put to the test. I was laid off five months later. We don't need logos and posters these days, Jenkin, my boss said. We need cash. We need investment. And please don't feel bitter towards me. After I've finished sacking you, I've got three others to speak to, then I'll be going upstairs and clearing out my own desk. A few weeks later, we received an instruction that the building society was repossessing our cottage. My salary had been insufficient to meet the mortgage payments for some time, and the redundancy notice had clinched it. But then, just two days after writing to us, the building society itself went under... So who owns the cottage now? We've been writing letters, but they go unanswered. We have to take them to the post office on foot now that the collection and delivery services have stopped, and we call in again every few days to see if there have been any replies. But there doesn't seem to be any mail for anybody. We can't email. We haven't had the internet for weeks. But then email is irrelevant. The electricity stopped on Tuesday. It was switched off during Owen's funeral. We'd agreed to do a buffet to help Gwen out, and the power failed at just the wrong moment. So we ate the sandwiches, and the half-cooked pies and sausages went in the bin. Owen was only in his forties. We don't know what he'd gone into the hospital for. Something minor, and he got an infection. It's happening more and more. Infections? There's no staff, you see. First they close A&D in all but a few hospitals. No accidents, no need for A&D. Then they make redundancies. Then everything goes horribly wrong. The ambulance service, the support staff, doctors leaving the country by the boatload. The best health advice at the moment is this. 
don't get sick. My algorithm will destroy the world. I remembered those words as I looked over at our friend, Gwen, trying to make sense of what just happened. Politeness demands the false smiles and acknowledgements, but look into her eyes and there is nothing. It's all gone. My algorithm will destroy the world. Leone's words. They seemed melodramatic at the time, an overreaction to a really bad day at the office. Leone is strolling up the dusty lane with Henri, our son. She's been to collect him from school. Life moves at a much slower pace here in Nigeria. We moved to Abuja City about five years ago. It was a move that probably saved our lives. I thought Leo would find some inner peace once she cracked the economics problem. But she'd been too late, at least for Europe, and she knew it. Her open-source version of Riskman mitigated the economic effects in some of those countries that had been slow to take up Riskman at the start. But the recession had had plenty of time to take hold elsewhere, and the domino effect had been catastrophic. It was my idea to move out here, and we had needed to call in a few favours to pull it off. It was only here in Africa that Leo finally came, in part, to accept the tarnished silver lining that lay hidden in Riskman. When Europe crashed, one of the many lasting images were of the heaps of biofuel crops rotting and stinking in warehouses and on quaysides. Public and personal transport had stopped, so had industry so there was no longer a need for African biofuel crops. A lot of our young troops in Africa had hacked into the black market versions of Riskman, and they were being shown life choices that didn't include having their nuts shot off. The biofuel war didn't really end, it just spluttered and died, and Leone, via the back door, had thus achieved one of her early driving passions. I think it eased her conscience a little, but I know she still finds it hard to live with the consequences of her algorithm. She destroyed a continent, and we cannot escape from the constant reminders. Every day we can see the relief efforts, the trainloads of fuel crops leaving for the coast to be shipped to Europe for use as food. Leo has opened a small consultancy in town, a lean-to with a desk and a chair, where she uses Riskman too, in a selective way to help the African economy generate food crop income. She's quite successful, but she's keeping it very low-key. She tries to curb the widespread use of the software, because even the modified version has its dangers. Before we left Wales, we saw many of the emotional effects of Riskman first-hand. We saw people, friends, who'd once had real purpose and goals, now left with nothing to do but tend their lawns, then dig them over to plant vegetables. We saw the entrepreneurs and risk-takers robbed of the power to take risks. I saw the emptiness in their eyes, and I painted what I saw. Too late for Europe. Galleries feed the soul, not the stomach. But here in Africa it's different. There's still hope. My paintings are being used as a symbol to all those who might want to seek out the easy option. Henri runs up to me and gives me a hug. I've been preparing dinner. A local recipe. I'm no chef. And this dish has a strange smell and a questionable colour. But we have free will. We can risk it. Copyright 2009 Galaxy Press LLC All rights reserved.
Next up is our good friend, Amy H. Sturgis, looking back at genre history. Amy! Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another look back into genre history. Today, I would like to put the spotlight on a man who had many literary talents. He's known as an essayist, a writer on English nature and natural history, an author of children's fiction, but for our purposes, most importantly, an early science fiction writer who was a pioneer in post-apocalyptic fiction. He accomplished a great deal in only 39 years, the latter of which he spent also fighting tuberculosis. His is a name that deserves to be remembered, and so it is my pleasure to discuss Richard Jeffries. Jeffries was born on November 6, 1848, and he died on August 14, 1887. He spent his childhood on a farm in Wiltshire in England, and that had a profound effect on him. In fact, that farm itself provided the background to most of his major writings. Jeffrey's father was a farmer who really loved his garden and tried to make the rest of his farm profitable, tried and ultimately failed. After he lost the farm, he became a jobbing gardener, working the gardens of other people's lands. Jeffrey's mother was a city girl who never really acclimated to the rural life. But these things didn't really affect Jeffrey's experience as a child, and thus he looked back on his young years as being rather idyllic and inextricably bound up in the land and the rural way of life. His 1887 novel, Amaryllis at the Fair, is almost an autobiographical portrait of his family on the farm. Jeffries had a bit of the adventurer in him. Uh, when he was 16, he and his cousin ran off to France, and they intended to walk all the way to Russia. But they discovered that the French that they had learned in school wasn't really enough to get them where they wanted to go. And so they ended up turning back. They tried something a little less ambitious, going to Liverpool. That didn't work out either, and he ended up back in his home in Swindon, where he grew his hair long and took to walking around the countryside, soaking in the natural ambiance, and pretty much becoming the town character. He was, if you will, the long-haired hippie tree-hugger long before long-haired hippie tree-huggers were cool. Eventually, he found his way to the newspapers and became a reporter. He worked for the North Wiltshire Herald, then the Wilton Gloucester Standard, and the Swindon Advertiser. By 1874, he had published Reporting, Editing, and Authorship, Practical Hints for Beginners in Literature, a nonfiction book, and his first novel, The Scarlet Shawl and married a nearby farmer's daughter, Jessie Baden. Soon he had published several collections of his essays and a second novel. For the purposes of genre history, his most notable early work was his 1881 novel, Wood Magic, a fable. This was the first of two children's books he wrote, but this one was unique because his child hero, named Beavis, no, there's no butthead in this one, was a child on a farm who lived near a small lake 
which was called the Long Pond. And this boy was truly a wondrous child of nature. He interacted with all sorts of birds and animals, and trees and plants, and all of these things spoke to him in a language that he could understand. In fact, even the wind and the water speak to the child. The story also includes the tale of the animal's revolt against their local animal tyrant. The following year, he wrote a follow-up book just called Beavis, but in this, the child is older and he doesn't have that same connection to nature anymore. It becomes pretty much、uh, your young boy's adventure novel, without any of the experience of communing and communicating with the wild. In 1883, he published his autobiography, *The Story of My Heart*. You might say he was sort of young to be writing his autobiography, but by this point, he was already two years into his、uh, ultimately tragic struggle with tuberculosis. And *The Story of My Heart* pretty much outed him as a natural mystic in his worldview. Already by this time, Jeffries had shown an interest in. What happens to human society when faced with natural calamity? For example, he wrote about how London society would collapse when freakish winter storms paralyzed the entire area, and he used a very science fictional approach in the sense, writing as a future historian trying to piece together the mystery of the Londoners' existence prior to this natural disaster. His short stories weren't published during his lifetime, but in 1885, his great post-apocalyptic novel was. It was called After London or Wild England. This is a fascinating book. It's divided into two parts. The first is called The Relapse into Barbarism, and it's an account again by an historian of the future talking about. The fall of civilization and what comes after, and this section is mostly composed of beautiful, longing description of how England becomes wild once again. If you've ever seen the documentary series Life After People, well, you'd be perfectly at home with Jeffrey's After London. The sense of the forest. Reclaiming the land, animals running wild, the natural in all directions, re-exerting control over the human made. The second part of the novel is called Wild England, and it's set many years after the ecological collapse, following humans in this wild setting. The so-called descendants of the ancients live an existence that's always. Under threat from the wild animals, from the very natural conditions of their land, but also from lurking savages like the Romanes, the Bushmen, and the Foot Gypsies. The protagonist is Sir Felix Aquila, one of the descendants of the ancients, and he goes off on a voyage of exploration across the lake, which is the setting for the little settlement that he knows. And he ultimately finds another spot that he thinks is ideal, where he intends to found a sort of utopian feudal state. Of course, in his adventures, 
He deals with all sorts of the nasty outliers who are brutal and cruel in one way or another, sometimes at least, and the strange politics of his own community, as well as this ravaged post-apocalyptic landscape. We're never quite sure of the root cause of the Great Cataclysm, but it certainly sets the stage for post-apocalyptic. Works to come. Here is a terrific example of the kind of prose that Jeffries used to describe this kind of blasted and destroyed, poisoned even landscape. As Sir Felix Aquila goes along, he finds himself in a noxious marshy area, looking for water that's suitable to drink. And here is Jeffries. The subtle poison of the emanations from the earth had begun to deaden his nerves. It seemed a full hour or more to him until he reached the spot where the skeletons were drawn in white upon the ground. He passed a few yards to one side of them and stumbled over a heap of something which he did not observe, as it was black like the level ground. It emitted a metallic sound, and looking, he saw that he had kicked his foot against a great heap of money. The coins were black as ink. He picked up a handful and went on. Hitherto, Felix had accepted all that he saw as something so strange as to be unaccountable. During his advance into this region in the canoe, he had in fact become slowly stupefied by the poisonous vapor he had inhaled. His mind was partly in abeyance. It acted, but only after some time had elapsed. He now at last began to realize his position. The finding of the heap of blackened money touched a chord of memory. These skeletons were the miserable relics of men who had ventured in search of ancient treasures into the deadly marshes over the site of the mightiest city of former days, the deserted and utterly extinct city of London, was under his feet. Pretty chilling stuff, isn't it? It's important to remember that this was more than a decade before H.G. Wells destroyed a good portion of England in the War of the Worlds, and used a similar kind of documentary style to describe the carnage and damage. Obviously, after London sets the stage for a number of post-apocalyptic works to come. And not just post-apocalypticism in general, but the sort of subcategory of post-apocalyptic works that describe a destroyed England. This would later come to John Wyndham and his so-called cozy catastrophes of the 1950s, such as *The Day of the Triffids*, J.G. Ballard's *The Drowned World* in '62, Marcus Sedgwick's *Floodland* in 2000. And most recently, the award-winning *Flood Child* by Emily Diamond, which was also published as *Reaver's Ransom* and *Raider's Ransom*, to name just a few. Beyond post-apocalypticism, Jeffries' *After London* also helps pave the way for works of environmentalist science fiction, and for that matter, works of utopian science fiction. William Morris's famous 1890 *News from Nowhere*, for example, was in part inspired by Jeffrey's *After London*. *News from Nowhere* follows a protagonist who falls asleep, wakes up in the future to find a sort of 
socialist pastoral utopia in full swing, living close to the land. Jeffries might have made additional contributions to the science fiction genre, but unfortunately, he did not live a long life. His ill health impoverished Jeffries, and in 1887, he died of a combination of tuberculosis and exhaustion. Fortunately, many of his works were collected and published in new compilations. And also, some of his unpublished works were later published for the first time posthumously. For that matter, the work that for us is by far the most important, after London or Wild England, is now available online for free at Project Gutenberg, and a rather good reading, unabridged reading, of the novel is now available at LibriVox.org. I definitely encourage you. To check out this novel, that in both form and substance predated and paved the way for many works of post-apocalyptic environmentalist and utopian science fiction to come, because we don't know exactly what caused the disaster. Although there certainly are several theories given in the book, it makes the work、uh, a timeless one, and it's intriguing to see. How the descriptions of the destroyed land anticipate the ruin described in later works that depict nuclear disasters or other sorts of apocalyptic events. In many ways, Jeffrey's concerns about the environment seem very contemporary, while his use of science fiction tropes will make his work instantly familiar and amenable to science fiction lovers. And there you have my spotlight on Richard Jefferies and After London or Wild England. I hope you've enjoyed it, and that you will join me again soon for another look back at genre history. Amy, thank you so much. Next up is story by Frederick Brown. Give you a little heads up, Frederick Brown. Born in 1906, died in March 1972. American science fiction and mystery writer. Born in Cincinnati, he's probably best known for his use of humour and his mastery of short-form stories. And this is exactly what this story is: stories of one to three pages with often ingenious plotting devices. Classic science fiction novels include *What Mad Universe* (1949), a parody on the pulp science fiction story conventions. Other works by Frederick Brown are *The Lights in the Sky Are Stars* (1952). One of his most famous short stories, *Arena*, was used as the basis for the episode of the same name in the original *Star Trek*. It was also the basis of a 1964 episode entitled *Fun and Games of the Outer Limits*. And there's also they also say it was probably a, based on for a story coming out in *Space 1999*, *The Rules of Luton*, and possibly Blake Seven's episode *Duel*. So they've all dabbled with that story there. This story is narrated by Peter Caval. Peter has done a number of stories for us, and I'm so proud to have Peter on the books, so to speak. There will be a link to Peter's site, and a link I'll put a link to Frederick Brown's Wikipedia site as well. So the starship's over, and her oral delights is very proud to present. Hall of Mirrors by Frederick Brown, read by Peter Caval. For an instant, you think it is temporary blindness—this sudden dark that comes on in the middle of a bright afternoon. 
It must be blindness, you think. Could the sun that was tanning you have gone out instantaneously, leaving you in utter darkness? Then the nerves of your body tell you that you are standing, whereas only a second ago you were sitting comfortably, almost reclining, in a canvas chair, in the patio of a friend's house in Beverly Hills, talking to Barbara, your fiancé, looking at Barbara, Barbara in a swimsuit, her skin golden tan in the brilliant sunshine, beautiful. You wore swimming trunks. Now you do not feel them on you. The slight pressure of the elastic waistband is no longer there against your waist. You touch your hands to your hips. You are naked and standing. Whatever has happened to you is more than a change to sudden darkness or to sudden blindness. You raise your hands gropingly before you. They touch a plain, smooth surface, a wall. You spread them apart and each hand reaches a corner. You pivot slowly. A second wall, then a third, then a door. You are in a closet, about four feet square. Your hand finds the knob of the door. It turns and you push the door open. There is light now. The door has opened to a lighted room, a room that you have never seen before. It is not large, but it is pleasantly furnished, although the furniture is of a style that is strange to you. Modesty makes you open the door cautiously the rest of the way, but the room is empty of people. You step into the room, turning to look behind you into the closet, which is now illuminated by light from the room. The closet is and is not a closet. It is the size and shape of one, but it contains nothing, not a single hook, no rod for hanging clothes, no shelf. It is an empty, blank-walled, four-by-four-foot space. You close the door to it and stand, looking around the room. It is about twelve by sixteen feet. There is one door, but it is closed. There are no windows. Five pieces of furniture. Four of them you recognize, more or less. One looks like a very functional desk. One is obviously a chair, a comfortable-looking one. There is a table, although its top is on several levels instead of only one. Another is a bed, or couch. Something shimmering is lying across it, and you walk over and pick the shimmering something up and examine it. It is a garment. You are naked, so you put it on. Slippers are partway under the bed, or couch, and you slide your feet into them. They fit, and they feel warm and comfortable as nothing you have ever worn on your feet has felt, like lamb's wool but softer. You are dressed now. You look at the door, the only door of the room except that of the closet from which you entered it. You walk to the door, and before you try the knob, you see the small typewritten sign pasted just above it that reads, this door has a time lock set to open in one hour. For reasons you will soon understand, it is better that you do not leave this room before then. There is a letter for you on the desk. Please read it. It is not signed. You look at the desk and see that there is an envelope lying on it. You do not yet go to take that envelope from the desk and read the letter that must be in it. Why not? Because you are frightened. You see other things around the room. The lighting has no source that you can discover. It comes from nowhere. It is not indirect lighting. The ceiling and the walls are not reflecting it at all. They didn't have lighting like that back where you came from. What did you mean by back where you came from? You close your eyes. You tell yourself, I am Norman Hastings. I am an associate professor of mathematics at the University of Southern California. I am 25 years old, and this is the year 1954. You open your eyes and look again. They didn't use that style of furniture in Los Angeles, or anywhere else that you know of. 
in 1954. That thing over in the corner, you can't even guess what it is. So might your grandfather, at your age, have looked at a television set. You look down at yourself, at the shimmering garment that you found waiting for you. With thumb and forefinger, you feel its texture. It's like nothing you've ever touched before. I am Norman Hastings. This is 1954. Suddenly you must know, and at once, you go to the desk and pick up the envelope that lies upon it. Your name is typed on the outside. Norman Hastings. Your hands shake a little as you open it. Do you blame them? There are several pages, typewritten. Dear Norman, it starts. You turn quickly to the end to look for the signature. It is unsigned. You turn back and start reading. Do not be afraid. There is nothing to fear but much to explain, much that you must understand before the time lock opens that door, much that you must accept and obey. You have already guessed that you are in the future, in what, to you, seems to be the future. The clothes in the room must have told you that. I planned it that way, so the shock would not be too sudden, so you would realize it over the course of several minutes rather than read it here, and quite probably disbelieve what you read. The closet from which you have just stepped is, as you have by now realized, a time machine. From it you stepped into the world of 2004. The date is April 7th, just fifty years from the time you last remember. You cannot return. I did this to you, and you may hate me for it, I do not know. That is up to you to decide, but it does not matter. What does matter, and not to you alone, is another decision which you must make. I am incapable of making it. Who is writing this to you? I would rather not tell you just yet. By the time you have finished reading this, even though it is not signed, for I knew you would look first for a signature, I will not need to tell you who I am. You will know. I am seventy-five years of age. I have, in this year two thousand and four, been studying time for thirty of those years. I have completed the first time machine ever built, and thus far its construction, even the fact that it has been constructed, is my own secret. You have just participated in the first major experiment. It will be your responsibility to decide whether there shall ever be any more experiments with it, whether it should be given to the world, or whether it should be destroyed and never used again. End of the first page. You look up for a moment, hesitating to turn the next page. Already you suspect what is coming. You turn the page. I constructed the first time machine a week ago. My calculations told me that it would work, but not how it would work. I had expected it to send an object back in time. It works backward in time only, not forward. Physically unchanged and intact. My first experiment showed me my error. I placed a cube of metal in the machine, it was a miniature of the one you just walked out of, and set the machine to go backward ten years. I flicked the switch and opened the door, expecting to find the cube vanished. Instead, I found it had crumbled to powder. I put in another cube and sent it two years back. The second cube came back unchanged, except that it was newer, shinier. That gave me the answer. I had been expecting the cubes to go back in time, and they had done so, but not in the sense I had expected them to. Those metal cubes had been fabricated about three years previously. I had sent the first one back years before it had existed in its fabricated form. 
Ten years ago it had been ore. The machine returned it to that state. Do you see how our previous theories of time travel have been wrong? We expected to be able to step into a time machine in, say, 2004, set it for 50 years back, and then step out in the year 1954. But it does not work that way. The machine does not move in time. Only whatever is within the machine is affected, and then just with relation to itself, and not to the rest of the universe. I confirmed this with guinea pigs, by sending one six weeks old five weeks back, and it came out a baby. I need not outline all my experiments here. You will find a record of them in the desk, and you can study it later. Do you understand now what has happened to you, Norman? You begin to understand, and you begin to sweat. The I who wrote that letter you are reading is you, yourself at the age of seventy-five, in this year of two thousand and four. You are the seventy-five-year-old man, with your body returned to what it had been fifty years ago, with all the memories of fifty years of living wiped out. You invented the time machine. And before you used it on yourself, you made these arrangements to help you orient yourself. You wrote yourself the letter which you are now reading. But if those fifty years are, to you, gone, what of all your friends, those you loved? What of your parents? What of the girl you were going, were going, to marry? You read on. Yes, you will want to know what has happened. Mom died in 1963, Dad in 1968. You married Barbara in 1956. I'm sorry to tell you that she died, only three years later, in a plane crash. You have one son. He is still living. His name is Walter. He is now 46 years old and is an accountant in Kansas City. Tears come into your eyes, and for a moment you can no longer read. Barbara, dead. Dead for 45 years. And only minutes ago, in subjective time, you were sitting next to her, sitting in the bright sun in a Beverly Hills patio. You force yourself to read again. But back to the discovery. You begin to see some of its implications. You will need time to think to see all of them. It does not permit time travel as we have thought of time travel, but it gives us immortality of a sort, immortality of the kind I have temporarily given us. Is it good? Is it worth while to lose the memory of fifty years of one's life in order to return one's body to relative youth? The only way I can find out is to try, as soon as I have finished writing this and made my other preparations. You will know the answer. But before you decide, remember that there is another problem, more important than the psychological one. I mean overpopulation. If our discovery is given to the world, if all who are old or dying can make themselves young again, the population will almost double every generation. Nor would the world, or even our own relatively enlightened country, be willing to accept compulsory birth control as a solution. Give this to the world, as the world is today in 2004, and within a generation there will be famine, suffering, war, perhaps a complete collapse of civilization. Yes, we have reached other planets, but they are not suitable for colonizing. The stars may be our answer, but we are a long way from reaching them. When we do, someday, the billions of habitable planets that must be out there will be our answer, our living room. But until then, what is the answer? Destroy the machine? 
But think of the countless lives it can save, the suffering it can prevent. Think of what it would mean to a man dying of cancer. Think. Think. You finish the letter and put it down. You think of Barbara, dead for forty-five years, and of the fact that you were married to her for three years, and that those years are lost to you. Fifty years lost. You damn the old man of seventy-five whom you became, and who has done this to you, who has given you this decision to make. Bitterly, you know what the decision must be. You think that he knew, too, and realize that he could safely leave it in your hands. Damn him, he should have known. Too valuable to destroy, too dangerous to give. The other answer is painfully obvious. You must be custodian of this discovery, and keep it secret until it is safe to give, until mankind has expanded to the stars and has new worlds to populate, or until, even without that, he has reached a state of civilization where he can avoid overpopulation by rationing births to the number of accidental or voluntary deaths. If neither of those things has happened in another fifty years, and are they likely so soon, then you, at seventy-five, will be writing another letter like this one. You will be undergoing another experience similar to the one you're going through now, and making the same decision, of course. Why not? You'll be the same person again. Time and again to preserve this secret until man is ready for it. How often will you again sit at a desk like this one, thinking the thoughts you are thinking now, feeling the grief you now feel? There is a click at the door, and you know that the time lock has opened, that you are now free to leave this room, free to start a new life for yourself, in place of the one you have already lived and lost. But you are in no hurry now to walk directly through that door. You sit there, staring straight ahead of you blindly, seeing in your mind's eye the vista of a set of facing mirrors, like those in an old-fashioned barber shop, reflecting the same thing over and over again, diminishing into far distance. There you go. That is the two stories. Peter Caval, thank you so much, sir. We've got more work by Peter coming very soon. So was it Mike Wood or Frederick Brown? When you can tell me. Do come over to the front of the website. There is the poll. Just click on that and tell us which story you like. We will have the results next month. So that is Starship Sofa's Oral Delights, show 134. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we have coming up Starship Sofa's Interrogations. 15 questions put to a science fiction writer. Who will that writer be? Do join us next week. Until then, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.